My name is Adam Sandwick, and I have the privilege of serving as one of the elders here at Cross Point, and it's my joy to uh, preach the word this morning. As we've just heard from the reading, uh, our sermon will come from Hebrews 2. Uh, if you want to make your way there, if you haven't, if you don't have a Bible, I'd invite you to use a black Bible that's in a chair around you. It's page 1001 in those Bibles. It's good for you to see what you're hearing from the pulpit. Uh, if you're unfamiliar with us at Cross Point, our normal preaching pattern is to systematically go through books of the Bible. But today, as with the last few Sundays, we're taking a break from 1 Timothy to hear from other parts of Scripture. Uh, incidentally, we're, we have a men's Bible study here uh, that's not here, but we're currently going through the book of Hebrews, and I've been very challenged and encouraged by this. So I wanted to take an opportunity to invite any and all men to that Bible study. We would be delighted to outgrow where we currently meet and have to find a new spot. Uh, there's some information about it in the bulletin, or you can ask myself, Jen Hopkins. About a dozen years ago, I had the opportunity to go to Uganda with my previous church on a short-term mission trip. And one of my highlights of that trip was we got to fly from one part of the country to another part of the country uh, with Mission Aviation Fellowship. And the pilot, he allowed me to sit up front with him and actually take, take the controls, probably for longer than I deserved. Uh, but one thing that stuck out to me was how difficult it was for me to keep a consistent heading in the airplane without a, uh, a lot of help. It, the pilot was, he gave me some pointers. He noticed that we, we would drift, and I would correct, and drift, and I would correct. And so he said something like, you need to find a fixed point on the distant horizon and head towards that. And it, it wasn't a cloudy day, overcast at all, but there were, there were clouds on the distant horizon, if you know what I mean. And so it, his advice wasn't exactly helpful. So I would keep like looking down to the, the heading indicator to correct course. I knew he was side-eyeing me the whole time and scoffing probably. But at one point, he took off his sunglasses and he totally vindicated me because he expressed such surprise at how difficult it was to see the horizon because of the existing clouds. I, I remember thinking, like without his magic pilot sunglasses, here I was with no sunglasses, like having a hard time. Like I thought that we were going in the right direction. My eyes and my mind told me one thing, but the instruments were saying something completely different. I'm thankful I could learn that lesson in a safe way, and it wasn't a tragic way to learn that lesson. But keep that in mind as we look at our passage this morning. The first four verses here in Hebrews, this is the first warning passage in the book of Hebrews, there are a handful of them throughout. And from our passage today, I want to draw out three points. One, what is the warning? Two, what is the danger if we ignore this warning? And three, to whom is the warning addressed? So one, what is the warning? Look with me at the verses we must pay much closer attention. 
to what we have heard. And then later restated down there in verse 3. Do not neglect such a great salvation. Because this opening contains the word therefore. That's a connecting word that looks backward in the text in order to move forward. And it contains an assumption that there's something we've heard. I want you to look back to the beginning of the book. Maybe just one page over. Go to Hebrews 1, verses 1 through 4. I'll read these four verses. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom also He created the world, He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. The author opens up the letter with this juxtaposition or this side-by-side comparison of how God has chosen to reveal himself to us. The language there, it's clear that the author is dividing time into before Christ and then Christ and onward. Long ago, God spoke to us through prophets. He used intermediaries to communicate. These last days, the period from Jesus' arrival onward, he revealed himself through his son, through Jesus, his self-revelation. No longer was God content to use a mediator to communicate. God in the flesh came to communicate with us. Then the author gives seven amazing attributes of Jesus Christ. I don't want to skip past these. We can't spend time right now on them, but I do want you to see them right there in the opening of this text. God appointed Jesus heir of all things. This signifies dominion and authority. God created the world through Jesus. Jesus is the radiance of God's glory. Jesus is the exact imprint of God's nature. Jesus upholds and sustains all things by his word. Nothing is outside of his authority. Jesus made purification for sins, the only remedy for sin. And Jesus sits at God's right hand, signifying finished work in a place of honor. All of Hebrews and really all of Scripture is contingent on a right view of Jesus, who he is and what he has done. And it fuels everything that's going to follow in the book of Hebrews as the author makes the case and builds on it for the superiority of Jesus, who he is and what what he's done to what came before So I want to ask you, friends, do you have a right understanding of who Jesus is? This is foundational to our faith. Our faith is not a list of do's and don'ts. It's not rules only. Our faith is rooted in Jesus Christ. His call is for us to come to him, believe him, and have fellowship or relationship with him. The next, the author, he'll string together a series of Old Testament quotations to show the superiority of Jesus, specifically to angels, showing that Jesus is a son of God who will rule, 
established from before the creation of the world, but of angels, look how the, uh, the author concludes chapter 1, verse 14. Are they angels, not all ministering spirits, sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? In contrast to all that Jesus is and does, the angels are servants of God for the sake of his called people, those who are to inherit salvation. There is no comparison. Jesus is better. He is the author of our salvation. The angels are his servants. Okay, now we come to 2.1, and we have some background with which to absorb the word therefore and then move forward in the text, right? Because of or in light of everything that was said before, now what? Because Jesus is superior to the prophets, and that he didn't just come as God's messenger only. Think Isaiah, Jeremiah, Micah, Jonah. God's messengers, yes, but mere men, sinful men. But God, Jesus, pardon me, Jesus came as God incarnate to deliver his message. And because Jesus is superior to angels. So you see this pattern in Hebrews. It's going to be a recurring theme throughout the book that Jesus is superior to and the ultimate fulfillment of all that came before. Because he is superior, we are warned that we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard and not neglect it. And it's not just a suggestion to pay attention, right? Like in class, hey, listen up, pay attention. This is more of a strong encouragement or a challenge to us that we must give our utmost further than our upper limit, going past what we anticipated in devoting our lives, applying ourselves. And to neglect is the opposite, right? It's to treat it as nothing, to totally disregard. It's carelessness. Okay. So what's so great that it deserves everything from us, that it deserves our devotion? Look there at verse 1. What we have heard. It's also stated down in verse 3. Such a great salvation. This is why I wanted to read the first four verses of the first chapter. So that you can see what the author is referring to when he says, what we have heard goes all the way back to chapter 1, verse 2. Now God has spoken to us by his Son. And there was a very specific message. And we see it all throughout the Gospels when Jesus came teaching. Write these down. You don't have to turn there is a sampling. Jesus said, the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. That's Luke 19.10. Jesus said, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. That's Luke 5.32. Jesus says, for even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. That's Mark 10.45. Jesus said, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. That's Matthew eleven twenty-eight through 30. And then at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, he went to the synagogue in Nazareth on the Sabbath. The scroll, they gave him the scroll of the prophet Isaiah. He went and unrolled the scroll, found the place where it was written. 
the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because He has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. He rolled up the scroll, sat down, all eyes were fixed on him, and he said, Today the scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. That's Luke chapter 4. Jesus came proclaiming salvation. What we have heard is the gospel message. We are separated from God because of our sin, and we deserve eternal punishment. But God, in his grace, sent his son, Jesus Christ, to live, suffer, and die in our place for the atonement of our sin, the just payment that we could never make, and he rose from the dead to defeat the power of sin and death. He took our sin, and he gives us his righteousness. It is truly such a great salvation. I have one more passage, one more look at the message that Jesus came proclaiming. If you will, turn to John chapter 3. The fourth gospel, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. I'm going to read verses 14 through 18. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned. But whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the Son of God. Look there where it says, is condemned already. That's a clear statement that all the world, all of us, have a problem apart from Jesus. The gospel or the good news is that Jesus came to save us. Flip back to Hebrews chapter 2. How does this author then go about convincing these Jewish converts that he's writing to to cherish Jesus' message more than the Jewish religion that they're coming out of, to pay much closer attention, to not neglect it? Remember, I said in the opening of chapter 1 that the author juxtaposed or set up side-by-side comparison how God communicated and revealed himself to his people before the time of Jesus with how he then revealed himself to his people in the person of Jesus, God incarnate. Well, he returns to this same side-by-side comparison in verses 2 and 3, looking at first the message declared by angels, then, a little lower, the message declared by the Lord. That's Jesus. When the author of Hebrews uses the word Lord, he's talking about Jesus. He uses God, referring to God the Father. So the message declared by angels is the Mosaic Law, the Old Covenant, literally the foundation for the Jewish religion. Jewish tradition held that God delivered the law, the commandments, to Moses on Mount Sinai through angels as his mediator. 
This isn't teaching that sounds familiar to us, but here are a couple of New Testament references that gives us additional insight to how angels were viewed. In Acts chapter 7, Stephen is giving his speech before the Sanhedrin, and he uses Israel's history in the Old Testament to point forward to Jesus as the Christ. Well, twice in his speech, he mentions that Moses received the law through angels. And at Galatians 3.19, Paul writes, Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. And it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Angels were certainly esteemed, but as I mentioned earlier, the author of Hebrews dedicates a significant portion of the first two chapters of this book to show the superiority of Jesus to angels. Where angels were considered intermediaries between God and man, a third party used to communicate, much like the prophets had been, Jesus is exalted above them as God's own son, doing away with the need for an intermediary, for a third party. They are his servants, remember, as it said, he, Jesus, is the exalted son. So we see that the message declared by angels is the Mosaic law, what we think of as the Old Covenant. The second message referred to here is what we now call the New Covenant, instituted by Jesus Christ at his first coming. Some verses here for you to see that. In Matthew chapter 26, and then repeated by Paul in 1 Corinthians 11, at the Last Supper, says, In the same way also Jesus took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. And then Matthew 5, 17, this is the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus says, do not think that I've come to abolish the law and the prophets. I didn't come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. So follow me with this. The author's pattern in Hebrews throughout the book, he shows them something from the Jewish religion or for the old covenant. And then he proceeds to show them how Jesus is the ultimate fulfillment of that Old Testament sign. So here he says, if the Old Covenant carried with it just retribution, retribution is the idea of something that we earn or deserve, like paid wages, consequences, punishments that are due to us, just, just meaning that it's right, that we get what we deserve, then we can expect no different outcome from our transgressions or our disobedience, even under the New Testament. The Old Covenant or the Mosaic Law demanded strict adherence and obedience to God's Word. That requirement hasn't changed for us, even with the advent of Jesus Christ and His New Covenant. The call to us is still to obedience. So the charge to the original recipients of this letter and to us is that we must devote our lives to this gospel. And a stern warning accompanies this charge. So point two, what is the danger if we ignore the warning? Again, look with me at the text. Lest we drift away. And stated later, how shall we escape? At first glance, this can seem to be teaching a much debated doctrine. In fact, this is a popular warning that some people will point to in support of a position that the believer can lose their salvation. Maybe some of you in here have been influenced in your 
theology around that based on passages like this uh, and others like it throughout the Bible and even in Hebrews later. Well, when we encounter passages like this one that give us pause, the best practice is to interpret Scripture with Scripture. And that way we can answer some of our underlying questions and concerns. Here at Crosspoint, our doctrinal statement says that we believe and teach that Scripture is clear in its teaching that the believer cannot lose their salvation. We didn't do anything to merit or earn salvation, and therefore we can do nothing to lose it. Hear these words of Jesus from the book of John. This is chapter 6, verses 37 through 39. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given to me, but raise it up on the last day. And in chapter 10, verses 27 through 29, book of John, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. And Paul, writing to believers in Rome, book of Romans 8, 35 through 39, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Look, these are only three examples of Scripture's teaching on this topic, that the believer can't lose their salvation. But just in those three passages, we see one, Christ will never cast a believer out. Two, Christ will not lose a believer. Three, the believer cannot be snatched out of Christ's hand or the Father's hand. And four, nothing can separate us from the saving love of God in Christ. That pretty well covers all possible scenarios for the believer losing salvation. So we must read Hebrews chapter 2 in light of the whole teaching of Scripture. Then what are we to make of the danger of drifting away or neglecting or not escaping? Remember the lesson I, I learned in flying, how easy it was to stray off course without the aid of something fixed to have our eyes or to look at? Similarly, I want you to think for a minute about boating. If you've ever been on a boat in the water, you know that it's nearly impossible to remain stationary in one place without help. In the open water, the way that you stay in one place is with an anchor, something weighty, right, that keeps you grounded to one spot. Or if you're traveling by boat, how can you realistically hold your course without the aid of a fixed point of reference, whether that be a compass or a fixed object on the horizon or the shoreline? In Hebrews chapter 6, verse 19, Jesus is called the steadfast anchor of our soul. And we're challenged to hold fast to that anchor to keep us from the dangers of drifting or wavering. In fact, we're exhorted time and again in Hebrews. At chapter 3, verse 6, 3.14, 4.14, 
6.18, All of those say, hold fast. Hold fast to the gospel hope we have. This is the opposite of neglecting or drifting. It's paying close attention. It's maintaining course. It's holding on tight to what we know, what we treasure. That's the warning. That's the danger of drifting if we're not paying attention. Now I want you to think about the warning, how shall we escape? Right? It says, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? The nature of the question assumes that we are in a situation from which escape is necessary, right? See that? It's a logical, rhetorical question that assumes escape is what we should want. How shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? From Genesis 3 onward, the Bible is teaching us that we are all born into opposition with God. We're his enemies, Romans says. Not by anything we've done, but because of the original sin of Adam that fractured the relationship between God and mankind. There, I don't have a better way to sum up this section of the warning than to simply restate it. You will not escape if you neglect such a great salvation. The third point. To whom is the warning addressed? With the tone of this warning, it might feel like the author is writing to unbelievers and urging them toward faith in Jesus Christ for their salvation, right? But if you will, look over to chapter 5, verse 12. The author writes, For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. These were believers. And the indication is that they'd been believers for a while. Certainly the original audience could have included some unbelievers, but the primary audience was believers. So Christians, this ought to grab our attention. So the original audience was to believers. We should read this that way. But I, I want to show you, though, that the warnings in this passage are applicable to all of us, both the believer and the unbeliever, although with different outcomes and consequences for the two. And in order to do that, I want to address two questions. One, how do we pay much closer attention to and devote our lives to the gospel? And two, how can we drift away from it and neglect it? First, how do we pay much closer attention to the gospel, that which we have heard from Jesus? You regularly apply the gospel in your life, inwardly and outwardly. Inwardly. Christians, we are saved sinners who still sin. And yet it's tempting to fall into shame and we think, how can God love me after what I've done again, right? Or, I don't even think I'm a Christian anymore because I'm still struggling with the same sins again and again. That mindset, Christian, is a misunderstanding of the gospel because as if you were saved in the first place because of anything you've done or didn't do. I'll repeat that, sorry. It is a misunderstanding of the gospel of Jesus Christ to think that we are saved because of anything in us or that we have done. And therefore, that God is disappointed in us if we turn back to sin, when we turn back to sin. 
When you read through the Gospels, pay attention to how often Jesus confronts and teaches against the traditional ideas of religion that we have to earn favor with God. To apply the Gospel internally means that I confess my sin to the one who knows my sin and saved me from the penalty of my sin and acknowledge that without His grace, God's grace, which is an undeserved gift to me, I would still be lost in my sin, headed for death apart from God. At the same time, not only am I saved from condemnation, but He has adopted me, made me His heir, granting me the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Pastor Paul Tripp, he says, no one is more influential in your life than you are. Because no one talks to you more than you do. In our sin, we constantly find our responses to life in our fallen world to be disconnected from the theology that we confess. Listen to this. Anger, fear, panic, discouragement. Those things stalk our hearts and they whisper a false gospel that will lure our lives away from what we say we believe. He says, will you just listen to yourself or will you start talking? No, preaching to yourself. Not letting your concerns shape you, but forming your concerns by the gospel. Christians regularly rehearse the good news of the gospel, God's undeserved grace to you in salvation, inwardly. Now, inwardly, I want to say for the non-Christian you must reckon with the gospel that you have heard from Scripture. We haven't read it today, but Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus and Scripture is clear that there is eternal condemnation away from God for those who do not believe in Jesus Christ as Lord and His life, death, and resurrection as our only means of salvation. As we did read in John chapter 3, though, we all stand condemned already, and the offer of salvation is our only hope in life. That's inwardly. Outwardly, Christian, because of the grace shown to us while we were God's enemies, we cannot view anyone else as outside the saving power of Jesus Christ. Because I wasn't saved because of anything in me, that is inherently better than anything in anyone else, even the most vile sinner that I could see. There's nothing in me better. Therefore, I'm an ungrateful recipient of God's grace when I fail to apply that same gospel grace to others. And I ought to be eager to share it. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 5 that we've been reconciled to God, and he's made us ministers of reconciliation. He charges us, Take your message to the world and tell them, be reconciled to God. Here's a catch. If you're not regularly rehearsing the gospel inwardly in your own life, you're far less likely to apply the gospel outwardly to others in your life. So that's how we can, apply, that's how we can pay much closer attention to what we've heard the gospel. We regularly apply it in our lives inwardly and outwardly. Second of those two questions, how can we neglect and drift away from what we have heard? All of us this morning should take to heart this warning. 
it is possible for you to drift away. This isn't saying that a Christian can lose their salvation. Remember, we believe that Scripture is clear in teaching that those God saves, He saves to the end. So what does it mean to drift? The implication from the, the, the word, from the passage, is that drifting away is the result of not paying much closer attention. It's neglect. So it's the inverse of what I just said. If we aren't preaching the gospel to ourselves and reminding ourselves of the truth of Scripture, we are so much more susceptible to the lies of Satan and works-based religion, which is a distortion of the truth. If we start to think we need to perform and do in order to earn God's love and approval, even though that is it's antithetical or opposed to everything that Jesus taught, it's a downward spiral from there to the depths of, well, I can't live up to God's standards anyway. What's the use of trying? Or I've tried it God's way with nothing to show for it, so it's time I start living for myself, Right? Those may sound like extreme examples, but think about it for a second. If I start to think my good standing before God depends on how well I perform and keep His commands, how long can I keep up the cycle of failure followed by shame and regret, followed by a renewed commitment to do my best, followed again by failure, followed by shame and regret? followed by a renewed commitment to do my best and really mean it this time, followed immediately by failure, followed by even more shame and regret because you couldn't keep up your end of the bargain, I couldn't keep up my end of the bargain, and on and on and on. That's exhausting. That's why works-based religion is an affront to the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's the meaning of Jesus' words that we read in Matthew 11, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. That's not an invitation to physical rest. To all of us that are working 40, 50, 90 hours a week at our job, come home, crash, get up, do it again the next morning, day after day after day. Or to the mom at home with tons of kids, can't get ahead in life, can't find a moment alone and the cycle just continues. This is Jesus' invitation to us to stop the cycle of working for right standing before God. You will never, I will never find ultimate soul rest that way. It is resting in His work alone, not ours, that sets us free from what the Bible calls slavery to sin and unrighteousness. That's how we can drift away from and neglect what we have heard, the gospel. To further emphasize the pitfalls of ignoring the gospel of Jesus Christ, truly that's what failure to pay close attention is. It's ignoring. The author uses an illustration from Israel's history to get across the danger that we could find ourselves in. Right When he refers to the old covenant and the angels who declared it from Mount Sinai to Moses, it ought to lead us to think of the generation of the Israelites who were supernaturally delivered out of bondage and slavery in Egypt and led by God right to the doorstep of the promised land. What was their response to this deliverance? It was neglect. We're told they treated it as nothing, almost as if God owed them. 
Recall the many grumblings recorded about water, food, the type of food, and the almost unimaginable complaint. We were better off in Egypt. If only we could go back to Egypt. And when it came time to enter the promised land, they shrank back in fear because they looked to their own abilities, right? Rather than to trust in God's promise to fight for them and deliver them into the land. Just as the Exodus served as the chief demonstration of God's deliverance and was repeated throughout the generations, all throughout the scriptures, as a reminder, their repeated unbelief also served as a warning throughout the generations. And it's in that same vein that we hear this warning. How shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? Now, as I said, these warnings were written for the sake of believers to hold fast, but I would be remiss if I failed to apply it elsewhere. Non-Christians, what it means for you to neglect this great salvation is that you hear it and you cast it aside. You prefer to make your own way, or God sounds like a killjoy who just wants to make you miserable. Maybe you haven't yet reached the point of soul-crushing exhaustion, right? That, that cycle I talked about of failure, recovery, failure, recovery. Maybe you never reach that spot. But Scripture tells us, do not be deceived. God is not mocked. A man re reaps what he sows. The one who sows to his flesh from the flesh will reap corruption. The one who sows to the Spirit from the Spirit, reaps eternal life. Maybe this is the first time you've heard the gospel articulated this way. If you think Christianity is a bunch of rules that we have to obey to earn right standing with God, how arrogant does it sound for a group of people to celebrate our right standing before God? You must think that we're talking about rules. We've done something better than you. We haven't. Please hear me say again. We aren't saved because of anything inside of us or anything that we've done. We're only saved because of what Jesus Christ did. You've heard the call of the gospel. Please do not neglect it. In closing, Christians, having heard this warning to hold fast to the gospel and your salvation, I want to leave you with this encouragement. Our only hope in life is that Jesus Christ, our anchor, He's the one holding us in the relationship. If our eternal destiny depended on us, we would have cause for concern. But Scripture, again, clearly teaches us His salvation is sure and certain, and He loses none of those He saves. So we see here, the Bible teaches us what appears to be a paradox, two truths that are opposed to each other, but it teaches them both as truth. Listen to this. It's a wonderful truth. We're called to hold fast and to pursue the truth as if it depended on us. But at the same time, we're to rest in the knowledge that he's the one holding us fast to the end. It doesn't depend on us. Understanding this will lead to the right balance of I am capable of, I rejoice in, I'm free to do good works because I am saved, only because I am saved. And it keeps us from either the extreme 
of I have to do good works in order to be saved or the other extreme, I'm saved, so it doesn't matter what I do, good or bad, right? Listen to these words from an old hymn. To see the law by Christ fulfilled and hear his pardoning voice changes a slave into a child and duty into choice. Pray with me. Our Heavenly Father, strengthen us by your Holy Spirit to heed your word, to apply the gospel to our lives daily, to be willing and eager to share the gospel with those around us. Please forgive us for the times we neglect such a great salvation. We pray this for your glory and our good. Amen.